in civil affairs, your success depends on getting the right information to the right people at the right time. Whether it's foundational information for a team about to head out on a mission or putting together a map or other data visualization to brief a general or an ambassador, Tesla Government Solutions and staff can help. With Tesla Government's knowledge management solutions, you're adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Right now, there's no such thing as the perfect PSYOP officer, the perfect PSYOP SEO. We're being asked to be fluent in marketing and advertising techniques in a foreign language, in a foreign culture. We're also being asked to understand how to measure effects, how to use survey methodology, how to conduct social media analysis, how to disseminate on those platforms effectively. We're being asked to integrate psychology, anthropology, sociology. There's cognitive neuroscience research out there that's very important to what we do. That's a lot of things to ask an E5 to be capable of. Hi, welcome to the 1CA podcast, the production of the Civil Affairs Association. I'm your host, Saad Raza. And our guest today is Major Ashley Halsman, a U.S. Army PSYOP officer. Major Halsman is a 2009 graduate of the United States Military Academy, West Point, and a recent graduate of the Command and General Staff College at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where he received a Master's of Military Art and Science degree. He's held several different positions as a PSYOP officer, with two tours of Afghanistan, once to assess the effects of psychological operations, and the other as a military deception officer for all the special operations throughout Afghanistan. He's also deployed to Central America in support of embassy operations and once in support of a regional security cooperation mission throughout the Middle East. Additionally, he's participated in multiple civil affairs training events, including an MRX in Puerto Rico, where he assisted local government in preparing for humanitarian and disaster relief contingencies. Major Halsman, welcome to the 1CA podcast, and congratulations with your recent graduation from CGSOC and earning your master's in military arts and science, also known as MMAS for our listeners. So can you tell us where you're calling from? I'm actually calling from the road. I'm in the middle of moving, having completed the best year of my life, and I'm really excited. Thank you for the opportunity. I'm really excited to share my research. Can you briefly describe how the MMAS program is at Leavenworth for our listeners? Yes. It may change in the future, as most things in the military happen to do, but the way the process worked for my year was essentially everyone did the Common Core program for the year at the resident CGSC. And those of us who chose to do a thesis were given the opportunity to do some research, study something that was important for the Army, either something that we identified ourselves or something that was identified by organizations within the Army from the other combatant commands to other special project areas of interest. The Joint Special Operations University has a list of theses, topics that they think are important. And what I ended up doing was I knew that I wanted to review the history of psychological operations, look at some of the history of special operations, and understand some of the lessons learned that could help us for the future. So I was very lucky. I was able to select and pursue my panel of thesis advisors. I had an active duty psychological operations officer who has his PhD, Colonel Linera. He was great. But I also had information operations officer and a reserve psychological operations officer and a force management professor. All of them were amazing from Lieutenant Colonel Linera, my thesis chair, to Miss Monique, also Lieutenant Colonel Pruitt, and of course, Mr. Hollister, the force management professor. He ended up being a godsend for the thesis because everyone else understood what I was trying to go for. 
and he was a third party who wasn't as familiar with psychological operations or information operations or even special operations. So his input actually really helped me to shape and frame what I was pursuing and build it into a format. That was really the important part is the structure of my thesis in the end was developed in a way that portions of it can be used for further change using the systems that the army already uses to change. As an example, I used a .mil PF format for my recommendations in basically reviewing the doctrine and everything else that comes from that. So it was very helpful to have the force management perspective in all of that. No, that's great. You definitely had a really good committee there. Lieutenant Colonel Linera, uh, I, I've known him before. I've read some of his stuff. He was actually on my committee too when I did my thesis. Uh, I've read articles from uh, Mr. Hollister on the JSIS process. I know he's published a lot. So really, really uh, strong team there. So going into the uh, title of your thesis, Artist of War. A History of United States Propaganda, Psychological Warfare, Psychological Operations, and a Proposal for its Ever-Changing Future. That's a really long title, but you know, can it you is. explain the reason behind that? It is. Initially, I was going to have a really short title, something that was really punchy. I kind of had that, and then I had the subtitle. Really, I chose the title because I was really frustrated in my research. I would continually find a thesis that was really important, but it was named something really obscure that no one would have ever searched for naturally. So the reason I found it was because it was cited in someone else's work, not because it popped right up in any of the library searches or any of the scholarly article stuff. Whenever I was on either academia.edu or when I was looking through JSTOR and other aggregators, some of these theses never popped up because of the name. So I decided I'm going to use a name that will pop right up. So further research can be made from some of the stuff I was actually finding. A huge part of my thesis, uh, to kind of frame it, the main body's around 167 pages, which is excessive. And I acknowledge it. I'm very wordy to a fault. But also, that's not the end of the thesis. The total of the thesis is around 475 pages. And it's because of all the appendices. It's a lot, but I just kept putting stuff in each appendix. And some of it's very comprehensive literature review, which became a, an essay format of roughly 100 pages of the history of propaganda and psychological operations. And all that's for the future researcher who finds it. And hopefully the title will help them find it instead of them having to find it through a citation in a really obscure thesis down the road. It'll pop right up. No, that's great, man. You know, at least there's a reason behind the madness and the long title there. You know, so people can actually find it when they start searching in databases. That's really good. I really enjoyed it. I didn't have an opportunity to finish the entire thesis, but I really enjoyed reading some of the historical pieces behind it. So, you know, I would love for you to explain some of the history behind propaganda and psychological warfare. Yeah, absolutely. Really, I tried to go back really far so that I could understand where it originated from. There was moments in history where essentially what we would describe as psychological operations occurred previously. From the Mongols to the Romans, there was a lot of actions. Greeks, you name it. For the most part, though, it was usages of propaganda or what we kind of think of as like an advertisement today. And I do make a point to talk about the difference between propaganda and psychological operations. Really, propaganda is going to be, like I said, an advertisement that tries to convey and swing an audience's opinion about something. And that can take many forms. Our news media, as an example, uses some of the techniques developed by the propaganda experts as they came out of the First World War and the Second World War. It has continually been used, etc. Psychological operation, though, or psychological warfare action really is 
kind of the next step of that, where you're integrating psychology techniques or concepts from anthropology, research, analysis, you're trying to measure your effects, and you're really going for a focused behavior shift or a behavior change. And, and that's where we kind of find ourselves today. Going into the history, I found that there was roughly four eras of psychological operations in American history, but also the history of the world. And it all started prior to 1903. That's where the second period occurs. Prior to that, it was mostly just propaganda concept. A lot of it was the churches. The Catholic Church is actually the originator of the phrase propaganda, where it was the Catholic Church developed its own little section to propagate the faith. And that's where we first see instances in history of really focusing on behavior shifting, behavior change, using concepts that were then later used. Each instance of an increase in propaganda throughout history coincided with an increase in usages of technology and really can be measured alongside the growth of both media, journalism concepts, and then also technology, as I said, which in the case of propaganda, comes in the form of communicating to the masses. So a lot of propaganda techniques emerged when democracies began sprouting up. And so we see in the first era, as I called it, I called that the pre-global war era, really from 2560 BC until 1903, we see the small instances and then the printing press comes along and that changes everything. Once the printing press comes along, communication to the masses becomes easier. And an interesting thing also occurs where the masses are also allowed to communicate back and communicate through a variety of means, one being journalism. As the media that we know today continues to develop, some of the leaders in the world, kings, rulers, heads of the churches, are able to use that technology to convey what they like. As an example, Napoleon was a master of what we would know as, for example, Napoleon was a master of what we would call psychological operations today. He really did define the use of what we call bulletins, where he was disseminating what he wanted the masses to know. Back then, there weren't any public affairs officers embedded with the military. That wouldn't come along until the British started doing that many years after, well, not many years after Napoleon, but after Napoleon. So before that, the media had to get all of their information from Napoleon's bulletins. And it actually became an art form trying to dissect what Napoleon's actions really were because he would just frame everything. He would sometimes announce that he had a victorious battle when really he failed or did not see succeed decisively. He would do all sorts of information campaigns to bolster his resolve. He also took full advantage of the French Revolution. The French Revolution was this emergence of the population participating in mass media and politics and overthrowing all these monarchs and it just started spreading it really birthed the concept of democracy and napoleon just took advantage of that and he saw what he wanted his goals to be and he understood how he could align his goals with the goals of the people and he manipulated the population through his bulletins and other means eventually crowning himself emperor off the backs of this social movement so a lot of interesting things really began with him another awesome example of the use in the pre-global war era was really from the actions of samuel adams and thomas paine thomas paine of course wrote a single product a single book common sense 
which was used and reprinted and reprinted and reprinted as the example of what Americans should think and how they should have the conversation of them revolting against the crown. Not only was the product itself very successful in swaying the population, gave them arguments to form, it told them what to think essentially and how to say it, but it also, up until just recently, in the last few years, was... It's in itself its own campaign in that Thomas Paine's reported numbers of how much he produced that book and how many of the copies were sold was itself later discovered to be conflated. He essentially lied about how many people had read it. The numbers he used, there weren't enough literate people in the colonies for that to even be true. And there weren't enough printing presses for that to be true. So it's interesting that historians cited Thomas Paine as the source of how many printings of his book occurred, but that was impossible. So fascinating. Samuel Adams had his own production line and also several pen names. Samuel Adams would change the way that he wrote in order to function as a pen name and write into all these columns and these newspapers trying to incite the population towards what became the American Revolution. So we see with Napoleon and Thomas Paine and Samuel Adams, all, all of this during the pre-global war period, as it's coming to a head and everything is beginning to increase with the use of propaganda and whatnot, that it, it is the use of the printing press, which becomes this crux of mass communication. There's a lot of interesting philosophy that has come out through the course of the more modern years, especially after the First World War, and then everything since then, where there is this ongoing conversation about how democracies need forms of propaganda in order to sway the population towards action in one direction or another. And we've seen that consistently still, it still happens, where uh, now we will see politicians framing actions as being just so that the population then gets on board so that then we can wage our conflicts that we as a government or as a nation see as uh, necessary. Kind of jumping forward as an example, most of us remember freedom fries instead of french fries because uh, a single politician wanted to incite this rally of American support for the conflict. We're still doing it. We're still creating these, these weird, not weird, but these interesting moments where we feel we have to incite ourselves towards decision. Likewise, we also have seen the populations of democracies participating, and it's really a conversation now. We have modern technology with the social media movements and social media usage from YouTube to Facebook to TikTok, where now populations, individuals can have at times just as much or even more sway over public opinion than the media establishment or a politician at times. So the backtrack and go into the second area of psychological operations and propaganda, really that's the First World War, but it starts in 1903 with the establishment of the United States General Staff of 1903. This wasn't a malicious, negative connotation sort of organization. It really was the military attempting to do what it could to gain support and to align itself with the intent of, at the time, the president and also the government. Really, the general staff at that time, before that, it functioned as an extension of the executive office, and it would execute what it was told to execute. But with the establishment of this new staff, essentially what it started to do was try to get support for military intervention, expansionist concepts, and also preparedness. It was trying to get the country ready for the next conflict. And it did that by allowing the general officers to write more and also allowing the media to interact with the general officers more. 
the general officers also participated not in politics, but in conversations with politicians. So when a politician said that they were interested in assisting the military, the military engaged in that conversation. And what ended up happening is we actually very successfully developed our military and were ready when we did enter the First World War. And that was important. Once we entered the First World War, we did recognize the need for propaganda to be used. And initially, America used propaganda against its own citizens to try to gain support for the conflict. The president saw that that was important. And and so then we ended up creating what was called the Committee on Public Information. And we started a large campaign to try to gain support, gain popular support and momentum towards the conflict. It was successful. We had a lot of concepts. There's a lot of lessons learned from that era. But as soon as the war was over, we got rid of the Committee on Public Information. An interesting thing did occur during the conflict, though. And I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, but his name was Hebert Blankenhorn. He was a journalist prior to the war. Some of the most successful individuals that were part of the Committee on Public Information were journalists before entering the war and the war effort. A. Bear Blankenhorn, as an example, was, was one of those journalists. And what he saw when he looked at the concepts and the actions of the Committee on Public Information was the potential for them to use propaganda as a weapon against the enemy. He was not supported by his peers and was not empowered. So he actually manipulated in a way by networking with his friends that he had and gaining a commission into the military in order to stand up the first psychological operations organization, essentially. It was called the Propaganda Section G2D. And it, and it started on January 23rd of 1918. And Hebert Blankenhorn is a single individual. We can look at him as the first, what we would call, psychological operations officer. The United States and Great Britain and the coalition, essentially, that conducted this propaganda campaign, these propaganda campaigns, were so successful that the Germans, after the war, claimed that propaganda was the reason they lost. A lot of them really believed that, and a lot of concepts and research were further developed in Germany. They believed in it so much that they used propaganda as a crux of the plans to incite in their own population what became the Nazi party and the movements. And it really was this massive machine that the Nazis developed. I didn't go too far into the history of Nazi propaganda, but there are a few books on it that are very useful out there. Suffice it to say, after the Second World War, most of the Western world, most of the Eastern world, most of the world accepted that propaganda, when leveraged and when conducted correctly, could be very successful in swaying populations, but also as a tool against the enemy. It kind of amazes me that talking about the World War eras and how the U.S. stood up, both the general staff and the Committee on Public Information, how they were more focused on the U.S. public to gain support for the war. And then somehow, you know, those lessons learned within propaganda, one man can take that and turn that to like using it as a weapon system to be able to target the Germans going into World War II. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, absolutely. One interesting thing that I saw so quickly to help frame the conversation, the first era was the pre-global war era, and that lasted until 1903. The second era is the World Wars era, which was from 1903 until the end of the Second World War, then into the Cold War era, and then finally the modern era. The modern era begins in 1985. But yes, what was interesting, though, is that while we accepted the concepts of propaganda and information and we saw that it could be very useful and successful, every time we stood it up, we stood it up for large-scale combat operations and we scaled it. 
and then we got rid of it. Similar to how civil affairs was scaled up during the Second World War, and we just mobilized all these capabilities. We had the Marshall Plan. We really believed at that time in operations after conflict and in transition. But then we eventually got rid of all those concepts. It wasn't until the Cold War era that we as a country finally started developing some of these concepts in perpetuity and in times of peace. It was really when the United States established Title 10 and Title 50. During the Second World War, we had an organization we called the Office of Strategic Services, the OSS. And that really was both the, the grandfather and the father of special operations as we know it today, but also the CIA. After the war, we were hesitant as a country to conduct these sorts of operations during times of peace. But it was with Eisenhower that we did develop some of these. Eisenhower, interestingly, had command over several of the influence organizations during the war. And I saw this actually in the research. The individuals who interacted with the various information operations organizations when they were younger, even if they were a general officer when it happened, they were more inclined to participate or to encourage or bolster or further develop those concepts when they were later in states of higher power. As an example, Ronald Reagan was a part of the first motion picture unit which was a psychological operations unit that leveraged Hollywood during the Second World War. Another example, Eisenhower, as I said, he was in command of several organizations, including what we call now the Ghost Army, which was a deception unit. But he also was in charge of the Inc., as they called it, which was one of the other psychological warfare organizations. It was further developed into the Psychological Warfare Division underneath Eisenhower's command. Eisenhower, later, was a very crucial individual for the development of Title X and Title 50. Under Title X and under Title 50, we developed psychological operations. We still called it psychological warfare at the time and special forces, and also eventually civil affairs. We brought all three of those together over the course of time, and we know how that leveraged now. But back then, they wanted to split it because the OSS essentially was able to use Title 10 and Title 50 simultaneously. They saw that as too much power. It was too much authority to do actions. It was, there was too many responsibilities to manage, and it was unwieldy. The Second World War, there was a lot of cases of inconsistency in the application of, of these activities. And so they developed what we know now as psychological warfare, and then they developed the CIA, giving the CIA the capability of also conducting psychological warfare. And then there was a third organization, the United States Information Agency, which was around until 1999. And that was given the authority to conduct also peacetime psychological operations. But in what we would know as a using a softer approach. Essentially, their, their role was in pushkin, what we would call American ideals and influence of culture. So the Fulbright Scholarship Program, that was developed underneath the United States Information Agency. Our understanding of exchanges that we know today, and also as we see our partner nations and our sister services and all these other organizations that attend schools like CGSC with us, that was at one time underneath the United States Information Agency. When I was in college, I studied diplomacy, and we talked about United States Information Agency you know, as one of the public diplomacy platforms during the Cold War to be able to have these exchange programs, you know, cultural exchanges, student exchanges, knowing it's a long-term influence to be able to push our values and democracy into some of these countries, which complements some of the things that we're doing in the military and everything else. And it was truly, I think during that era, it was truly almost like a whole government approach towards long-term influence against uh, socialism and communism. Yeah. 
Absolutely. That's exactly what it was. Everywhere you look, there's a barrage of emails and information telling you what everybody has done, is doing, or plans to do, all in excruciating detail. But access is only half the battle. You also need information presented in a usable form. But that takes work, and the more information you have, the more work it takes. Tesla government takes on these issues so that your office or agency can fully exploit the data you already have. Our knowledge management experts organize and curate your internal data. Our open source research augments your knowledge base with strategic insights from our globally experienced team. And our data visualization turns complex data into compelling visuals, while our community building makes sure everyone benefits by leveraging collective knowledge. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. So can we move forward into the modern era now and what your research found in the modern era and what some of your recommendations based off of what you see now and some of the way forward? Yeah, absolutely. So there was a lot of lessons learned in the Cold War era, but that's really just a series of rabbit holes. And there are a lot of important lessons to learn, but I'll be able to address some of those in the modern era. So that's perfect. Really, the modern era was kicked off for psychological operations with the establishment of the 1985 Psychological Operations Master Plan. So this master plan was developed at the behest of the president. So this was also something that was really interesting in the researches. There were times where as high as the president got involved in the development of what we know as information operations today. And the plan itself was a review of the past and a review of psychological operations as it stood. At the time, both civil affairs and psychological operations were a part of the foreign area officer program. They were functional areas. And back then, they were essentially the same pipeline, where if you were a civil affairs officer or a psychological operations officer or a FAO, a foreign area officer, you would go through this same pipeline. And then at the end of that pipeline, you would receive a basically what we know now as the qualification course. So it was taking a long time to develop officers. One of the things that the master plan developed was the understanding that NCOs needed to be integrated instead of just pulling NCOs for the wartime initiatives or the war efforts as they popped up. So that was actually a really positive thing. But there was also some other interesting things that I actually discovered in researching the master plan was this pattern that emerged within the psychological operations community, where one of the suggestions was for a general officer command, a super organization of PSYOP to be developed where it would have full control. And essentially what it was trying to do, the argument was to redevelop the OSS in many ways and to bring back this older idea. The problem being that in some ways it, it was counterintuitive to what we already decided as a government to separate, which was Title 10 and Title 50. It also created this pattern of changing the direction of special operations through a top-down approach instead of a bottom-up approach. But when I was looking at the research and at the past and at special forces as an example, some of the great developments in the history of special forces were the result of bottom up. And my friends in special forces love the phrase, we're a bottom up organization. I'm sure many of the listeners have heard that as well. And that's really where some of the, the power from special forces comes from. An ODA is the lowest, the ODB is next, the ODC and so on. Special forces developed MOSs early back in 1958. And so in my recommendations, I actually realized that several times in the modern era, psychological operations has attempted to create joint commands or a larger command. And each of those times, 
they weren't addressing some of the things that were addressed in other functional areas and in other specialties. We, to date, still have just two MOSs, the officer MOS and the NCO MOS. But with the increase of information, the spread of information, social media, the way that the world is networked together, we need to create more specialization. Right now, there's no such thing as the perfect PSYOP officer, the perfect PSYOP NCO. We're being asked to be fluent in marketing and advertising techniques in a foreign language, in a foreign culture. We're also being asked to understand how to measure effects, how to use survey methodology, how to conduct social media analysis, how to disseminate on those platforms effectively. We're being asked to integrate psychology and anthropology and sociology. There's cognitive neuroscience research out there that's very important to what we do. That's a lot of things to ask an E5 to be capable of. And if there was one thing that was clear in the research, it's, it was that developing a larger command was not the answer. It seemed very apparent that developing MOSs and specializations was a clearer answer and a way for us to establish what we need to do next, which is prepare for the next fight. No, it sounds like a lot of similarities with civil affairs and some of the problems that we have, you know, only having two MOSs you know, the officer and the NCO putting a lot of competing requirements specifically on the NCO because they're the subject matter experts at everything in theory and based on their job you know, duty description, it seems like it's a lot. And there's a point where both CA and PSYOP need to involve fight the wars of the future where it's going to be a lot more complex now where one person can't manage all of that from disseminating information, negotiating face-to-face to be able to data mine online and try to, you know, identify our, what our adversaries are thinking or doing. So I, I agree with you. I, I see a lot of similarities. Absolutely. Civil affairs, it's almost impossible to be good at all of these things, to be good at ArcGIS or ArcGIS, however you, pronounce, however you want to pronounce it to be good at face-to-face engagement, to also understand civil governance and when do I do a med cap? When do I do a dent cap? These things start adding up where it seems like specializing is a more profound solution. As simple as it is, developing more MOSs is something that we know how to do as a military. We know how to do that. So in the course of my research, as I got into the modern era, I wasn't able to rely as heavily on declassified material because some of it's still classified. So something I had to do was look at more uh, investigative journalism and, and what had been released through either inspector general inspections and inspector general investigations. So looking at inspector general investigations also that had been declassified, there was a few. And then there was also some RAND studies. And something I found in the modern era was from what was released and available to the public a lot of the operations in Afghanistan that were conducted by information operations organizations and also psychological operations organizations looked a lot like some of the stuff that we should have learned, some of the lessons we should have learned from Vietnam. And that was fascinating to me that we had apparently forgotten those lessons. And so some of that research was, I thought, really important. I made sure to put that in my appendices. And I also, that really, that really drove some of my conclusions and some of the recommendations is is realizing if we're going to do large-scale combat operations again as a military, if that's what we're preparing for, we need to make sure that we do it correctly. And we've done it before. We've done civil affairs at scale before. We did it during World War II. We've done psychological operations at scale, scaled up, all the way up. General officers were in charge of it. We put a lot of funding into it. We saw great effects, but we've also done it poorly in the past as well. We've done it great. We've done it bad. 
and that was a huge part of me trying that was a huge part of the research was trying to find when we did it good when we did it bad there was leaflet drops in desert storm where people surrendered combatants surrendered with the leaflets in their hands we call that the unicorn where your product is held by your target audience and they're showing it to you to surrender that's amazing we've done leaflet drops that yielded zero effect. So we've done it well, we've done it poorly. We've tried to apply some of these concepts at the right time, we've tried to apply some of them at the wrong time. And that was really what I was trying to find is when's the right time to apply what and what can be recommended in the future. No, I, I see a lot of similarities with civil affairs too. You, you talk about you know World War II and we scaled up both CA and PSYOP. That, that's a great example. And then, then we looked at some of the recent conflicts where we've seen some tactical successes, but not really the strategic success or operational level successes. And one of the things in, in reading your thesis, one of the recommendations there was you know, the repository of information. And I think within civil affairs, we had been in Iraq for years, but every time a new team went in there, they were trying to find information because it, was, it wasn't centrally located. And I, I, rem- I remember that, you know, people would, would deploy, put everything on a hard drive or a brick, come home and it goes in a safe and it stays there and doesn't go in anywhere centralized. And PSYOP has something similar or some type of similar issues. Am I correct? Yes, absolutely. And, uh, and I think Major Ian Duke does a great job in episode 45 of the CA podcast of discussing a way to address that. We're also developing a similar solution. It's called the technical information section. It used to be called the narrative diffusion cell. Essentially, the technical information section or the TIS is a section inside each of our regionally aligned battalions that is supposed to be that repository of information. And something I found in the research that I thought was really interesting, we only briefly mentioned academia, but when we did scale civil affairs, when we did scale psychological operations, civilians were a huge aspect of that in bringing in academics and researchers and people who understood these concepts already was one of the ways we were able to scale to large-scale combat operations Instead of trying to force a private to learn these concepts, we just found an expert. And instead of teaching them, they were already an expert at it. So we facilitated that. So in my recommendations, I actually do recommend that we bring some of those concepts to the modern era. In psychological operations, we have a cell or an element called the cultural intelligence element. Some people also call it the cultural intelligence cell. And it's a bunch of PhDs master's degree holding anthropologists and behavioral scientists. And up until sequestration, we funded this organization. But unfortunately now, because of sequestration, it's no longer funded. And the billets are in a state where if one of those individuals retires, they're not replaced. So one of the recommendations I actually brought up was we should really refund that organization, refund that program, because that is a way for us to scale. Let's put it inside the TIST and let's have them contribute towards lessons learned and repository of information. Let them be the researchers. Also, let's empower them to measure our effects. That was another thing that uh, seemed very apparent in the research is when organizations were asked to measure their own effects, they would, of course, always say they did effective work. It's their evaluations. It's their funding. Everything's tied to this. But we did not have third parties measuring the effects until after the conflicts were over. And then that's when the real criticism or the real understanding or the real lessons learned would emerge was after the fact or even after it was all declassified decades later. So bringing in the civilians is a way for us to address that. And also something that I really do think that 
we could develop within all special operations. It doesn't just need to be a psychological operations thing. I think Ian Duke's suggestion of making that a battalion that could function in such a similar way, be a repository of information, care about the strategic, start tying things together. It makes sense. If you're receiving all this information, you can assess it, you can measure it, you can evaluate it, and then you can also aggressively share it. We do have centers for lessons learned in the military, but if there's one thing I saw in my research, it was that those repositories exist, but they're not necessarily being aggressively shared with the force. I know they're not being aggressively shared within psychological operations, and it sounds like it's not being aggressively shared with the rest of special operations either. And there's a lot of lessons that we can learn, especially in psychological operations and civil affairs. There's a lot of ways to do what we do incorrectly, and there's, and there's also a lot of ways to do it right. I agree. Both civil affairs and psyops work in the cognitive domain or the human domain, you know, what you want to call it. And I think having that repository there to be able to have that information and share some of the lessons learned also. Uh, I really like your concept about reestablishing the TIS and having TIS regionally aligned and having like, like a TIS at the first SFC at the, you know, at the two-star level headquarters to be able to, you know, manage that information and continuously taking that tying up to, to strategic objectives. I think it's great. You know, maybe in the future for special forces command can have some type of fusion cell where you have you know, representatives from all the different tribes there to be able to take that information and actually come like a hub or a place you can actually take that and actually have a better understanding of the problems that, you know, our guys would be facing. Absolutely. In my recommendations, one of the things that I found was because the way the TIS is developed currently, it's developed to be a lessons learned section for a battalion commander. But if we look at the past and if we look at the way military rating systems work, if the TIS is if the TIS is measuring the effects of those operations, but the officer in charge and then his team or her team is rated by the S3 and that battalion commander, there's going to be a level of bias. So one of my recommendations was actually to move all of the TISs underneath 1st Special Forces Command, at least for the rating systems, and have one TIS in charge of all of those. And that one TIS would be within 1st Special Forces Command, whereas the others would be still within the Regionally Aligned Psychological Operations Battalions. But while they were rated by the 1st Special Forces Command, they would still function to support those Regionally Aligned Battalions. And if we can develop this correctly, I think that the TIS that is at 1st Special Forces Command, it doesn't need to be called a TIS. It can be a little larger. It could be developed further. It could integrate with Ian Duke's concept. It could be a larger fusion section. We could call it whatever we want. And we could figure out what works for measuring psychological operations, what we could figure out how to do five-year planning concepts. We could figure out what works for measuring civil affairs and we could do it together. And we can start developing concepts where we're then looking at measuring the effectiveness of all psychological operations alongside all civil affairs operations, alongside all special forces operations. If we're doing all this, then really we would be able to identify opportunities like center of gravity analysis, but correctly. And if we're finding that, maybe we do find the perfect direct action operation. And we could very well pass that off to someone within the special operations community who would be more inclined to execute that successfully. And that's really where the power of this, as it's further developed, would occur. Beyond just five-year planning concepts, 10-year planning concepts, looking at actual behavior shifting, behavior change, but also development. We've done that stuff before. 
that was something that the research showed me was we've done similar things before. It's just, let's bring it back. A lot of the papers that I would read and a lot of the theses that I went through in my research, many of the recommendations were to develop new things, to develop a new command, something large and structurally complex. Let's establish another joint command. Let's bring back the OSS concepts. Let's stand this up. Let's stand that up. Really, I think optimizing ourselves is the better solution. Developing the MOSs. Let's develop the TIS. Let's just bring back the cultural intelligence element. It already exists. Let's just fund it. Let's bring it back. Let's bring more personnel into that. We could use more PhDs within special operations. The special operations plans and development concepts all say that we need cultural expertise. But if you look at the training pipelines for special forces, psychological operations, and civil affairs, we're talking about a matter of weeks of training for cultural expertise. And there's no advanced level training for any of those concepts or any of those units. Instead of trying to train that, we can just bring in the PhD that spent all those years of, of academia. We can just bring in the PhD who already has that expertise. I agree. I think the cultural intelligence element should be reestablished. And I think first SSC should invest in the PhDs and bring in these GS employees back because they are the continuity. And if you know, these guys and gals that are there can potentially be that long-term, not just having an understanding of the problems, but also be able to manage in, in real time, be able to like, hey, two years ago, we've seen the effects and be able to actually measure those MOEs because as green suitors, as soldiers, we're continuously coming and going. We don't have that that continuity and that knowledge base, you know, we come, we do it. We, we get, once we really got to gain a good understanding, we PCS somewhere, we go to CGSOC and, and we're gone. And it's not a guarantee that we'll go back from where we left. So I, I agree. And I think, you know, potentially, like you said, first SFC could have their own TIS or something similar and have those MGS employees at that level to be able to manage that. And then, you know, pushing it down to the battalions and having their own and I agree with you. I think there is a little bit of a conflict of interest, you know, having a TIS being rated by the people that they're, that they're measuring the MOEs, right? So it's, there is a conflict of interest there. So maybe it's one of those things, that if you really want to have an honest broker there, the systems need to be in place where they don't feel that their careers are at threatened because, you know, they're giving a bad evaluation or the effects of their operations. Uh, I agree. I think that's great, man. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and it's not necessarily a new concept within the military. The Army has red teams. It's an ASI. We can go to a class for it. We go, well, we can go to a school for it. And that's really all I'm discussing. It's really all I'm, I'm proposing is that we use what already exists so that we optimize our organizations correctly. Another thing we could incorporate with understanding the PhD concept and how we brought PhDs in in the past is we have a new marketplace, the AIM 2.0. We're developing the ability for people to say what they're already good at that the army might not know about. As an example, you can say that you have an additional skill of graphic design in the current system. We can add more things like that. We can say, we can add some of the things that we would want for a psychological operations officer to be good at already. Do they have a film degree? That would be useful. Are they an audio engineer? Have they done audio production before? Have they already done a lot of research in, in this or that? Those are all things that could be identified in this system. Similarly, we could have that same concept applied towards a civil affairs officer or even a special forces officer. There are things that we don't keep track of that we could start keeping track of and we could start identifying within our own force. 
So instead of retweaking our qualification courses, which I do suggest we still do, but instead of that being the only solution, we can also find people who are already good at these things. And we can help identify them by empowering them to identify themselves and then bring them in. Man, that's a great recommendation. Yeah, I never thought about that, you know, using the AIM system, putting those skills out there and trying to leverage, telling, you know, potential candidates out there to like, hey, put your skills out there because these are potential things that potentially we can utilize, you know, like people that have, that have majored in film or, you know, or in civil affairs, someone that's focusing, you know, that majored in economics or political science, governance, they're all useful. I think that's great. Yeah, one of my friends, I worked with him. He's coming into the civil affairs organization now. He's in your pipeline. He grew up in another country in Africa. I don't want to I don't want to give too much information about him and call him out. But he grew up in an African country and he had a lot of experience working with NGOs in that country and he helped develop relationships and he did face-to-face -face engagement and he was able to leverage civil governance concepts as a teenager and is essentially a civil affairs officer already made. He just needs to receive the training to formalize it and he will be amazing at the job. I know he's already doing well in the course. He's, he's born for it. He's born for it. In the future, how can we identify him? How can we find him intentionally instead of him finding us? Because we could get that data and I think that's a great solution for us. I think that's great. That's a great recommendation. I, I can't agree with you more because I think, you know, Usually it's all by luck and it just happens like your buddy that's in the pipeline right now. But if you can formalize it, we've got a system in place. We've got AIM2. We've got the resume now that can put those additional skills or you know, qualifications that are out there. So I, I think that's great. Actually, I wanted to ask you one thing you know, before we finish off with this. Or I got two questions. What are your recommendations for a civil affairs, civil affairs officer or NCO that engages with a PSYOPer? I think if there's one thing that I saw in the research, it was the realization that if you really take a macro look at the three tribes, special forces, civil affairs, psychological operations, we were designed to work together and to complement each other. We don't always do that well, but when we do, we are absolutely force multipliers for each other. And finding ways to integrate, I think, is the way that we need to be successful. Optimizing ourselves by just working together and developing that network within each other. And also not being afraid to call on each other in the future. I have a whole Rolodex now, not literally. I have a whole contact list now of special forces guys and gals that I call that I will call if I need to and civil affairs people that I will call if I need to. And I I am aggressive in my networking to make sure that when I'm on a mission, I'm doing my best to try to integrate, not just Rambo my way towards success, because that would be good for my OER, but it might not be what's best for the mission. I agree, man. That's some great advice there because I think collaboration is key. You've got to collaborate with all the other partners within the tribes. You know, at one time someone set this up because there, there was a vision and they understood how we all, you know, our activities complement each other on the ground towards mission success. Second question before we leave, what books do you recommend? What one book do you recommend our civil affairs or, you know, or any, you know, any officer or NCO to read? I'm going to cheat and I'm going to say it depends on what they want to know. If they want to learn more about the history of propaganda, where it all started and how it was further developed, the go-to book is called Munitions of the Mind. It starts at the very beginning. It also talks about faith and religion. It's, it's very objective, though. It's not political. It's not an attack on faith. But it goes deep and it goes way into the past. If they want to know more about why we're developed the way we are and how some of the strategic stuff 
happens, I would say they should read for the president's eyes only. It dives into the uses of intelligence and in some ways why it was developed the way it was. And while we are not intelligence officers, we do at times touch that world and that world also bumps up alongside what we do. I think that's important. For any listeners that want to learn more about the history of special operations in general, Alfred H. Paddock Jr.'s book, U.S. Army Special Warfare, Its Origins, is 100% the go-to. He based the book off of his thesis that he wrote as a, as a young major, and he really goes into the development and how everything grew and where it came from, and it's a really important book really goes into the history of everything. When you look at how we were designed, how we function together, we really do all complement each other. In some ways, PSYOP does influence, CA does influence, SF does influence. It's just what part of the domain do we touch, be it the physical domain or looking more at the population itself or the cognitive domain or even physical actions. I agree, brother. No, that's good. Appreciate your time and I appreciate your contribution to the research of, of both special operations and specifically, you know, psychological operations, the history and your recommendations for the way forward. And hopefully some, somebody will read it and pick it up, continue on with further research or take some of your recommendations and put them in place. We'll see. I'm really looking forward to continuing to write and continuing to help develop the regiments, not just my regiment. And thank you so much for the opportunity to speak about what I've what I've learned and to share it with the rest of the community. And I look forward to the future. No, congratulations. Good luck when you, uh, when you head back to Fort Bragg brother and stay in touch. Thank you. Absolutely. With Tesla government's knowledge management solutions, you are adding a strategic partner that helps unleash the full power and potential of your institutional information. Let us unpack your data and put your knowledge to work. Learn more at teslagov.com. Thank you for spending some time with us. Please subscribe and come back for another installment of 1CA. Until then, be safe and secure the victory.